Can you be confident that misunderstandings or false assumptions could not arise between yourself and your client? In this program, Jen McMillan, legal practice consultant at LawCover and accredited specialist in wills and estates, and Peter Moran, partner at Colin Biggers and Paisley, discuss recent cases which highlight the importance of clear client communication and how these types of risk situations can be managed in everyday legal practice. Peter, thanks for joining us today on Risk On Air. Thanks, Jen. Good to be here. Okay, so when we look at law cover claims, we can see that in more than 40% of those claims, the underlying cause is some kind of failure of communication. We've been trawling through the recent cases and there are quite a few that highlight just how important it is for solicitors to recognise when they have to communicate something that the client perhaps doesn't want to hear. Um, We're going to run through a few of those cases today and the first one that I wanted to talk about is Ralston and Jurisic, which is a New South Wales Court of Appeal decision from 2017. Peter, can you just outline for us what the background was in that case? Certainly. It was district court and then it went to the Court of Appeal. Unfortunately for the solicitor, there was ultimately a damages finding of over $700,000 together with an order for costs. Yeah. But essentially what occurred was a lady wanted to realise shares that she held in a family company. There was a proposal that the company be voluntarily wound up. Right. She was reluctant to go down an alternate path, which was um, that liquidation path. Instead, what she wanted to do was to have the company buy back her shares. She consulted a solicitor about about her desire. The problem with the path that she chose, namely the the, the buyback path, was that it, it resulted in a substantial tax liability. That would have been a deemed dividend. It I was imagine. a deemed dividend. Right. So the tax liability, it was ultimately found wouldn't have arisen if the company had been wound up. So the plaintiff sued her lawyers for, in effect, not advising her as to the alternate course that was available. Did she come into the lawyer saying, you know, I want to weigh up between these two, or did she come in and say, I want to find an alternative to the voluntary winding up? Because if she'd already decided not to do that, it seems a bit rough to then say that the solicitors should have advised her that that would be more tax effective. As I read the judgment, she had, she she wanted to realise the net value of her shares. And she'd already decided that she would prefer not to go down a liquidation Mm. path. And I think from the solicitor's point of view, uh, the risk management issue for the solicitors here was that they perhaps should have explored the alternative. Because if you go back to your original instructions, it seems to me that what she was really saying was, I want to be able to realise the value of these shares and I want want to have the net realisable value, Mm. not the realisable value less a tax liability. Yeah. So how did the the court view it? Well, at first first instance, um, and this this ended up being established on appeal as well, The district court judge said, had the solicitors advised her to obtain tax advice, she would not have proceeded with the buyback, but she would have agreed to a voluntary liquidation of the company, which would have resulted in her receiving at least the same amount as she received under the buyback. So in other words, what they were saying was the solicitor should have explored the buyback option 
or should have at least advised her to obtain taxation advice right. in relation to it. Now, in circumstances where the solicitor, as often happens, says, I, I can't give you tax advice, yeah. I think the court will, will be of the view that you should at least go one step further and say, in my view, although I can't give you tax advice, I believe there will be tax consequences flowing from the path that you're instructing me to take. So you should at least explore, and I urge you to explore, the obtaining of tax advice. Right. So I guess what happened here was that there was there were two possible paths to the same outcome, her realising her value in the company, um, but the solicitor at too early in a, a stage got on the path of heading down one of those courses of actions without taking a step back and saying, look, we need to explore both the advantages and disadvantages of both options, even though you've expressed a preference not to go for a voluntary winding up. Yes. It's almost as if within a very short period of time of the solicitors being retained, it was made clear to them by the, by the client that she wished to go down a certain path. Mm. So although they did um, touch upon the other path, I think they probably proceeded on the basis that, well, she wa doesn't want to go down path B, she wants to go down path A. Yeah. Therefore, let's not pay too much more attention um, to the other path. Let's go down this path. And I think that's where you, you find yourself as a solicitor in trouble because the courts will expect that you at least explore the alternatives, yeah. then allow the client to make an informed choice. Yeah. Um, this is a case where the solicitor appealed the decision of the district court. Was there any joy in the court of appeal? No, they basically agreed with the first right. instance finding. It was primarily on appeal an argument about causation, namely whether the client would have proceeded down the alternate path if they'd given advice to that effect. And at the end of the day, the court of appeal um, dismissed the appeal. The appeal. Uh, and as I say, the damages were quite substantial and there was also an order for costs uh, yeah. and, of course, a finding of professional negligence on the part of the solicitor. So quite, a, uh, quite an unwanted outcome yeah. in, in a lot of ways. Yeah. And in some ways my sympathies with the solicitor in, in this case to some extent because if you have a client who's expressed a view that they don't want to do um, something, uh, it doesn't seem entirely un unreasonable to me to then be exploring other options rather than um, looking too closely at the option where the client's already expressed a view that they don't want to go for a voluntary winding up. I agree, although I think it would be worthwhile exploring why they don't want to yeah. go down particular paths. Yeah. And if it's going to cost them dollars in the end, they might well be quite happy to go down yes. the other path. <laughs> exactly. And in this case, um, the evidence appears to, to have demonstrated that that the plaintiff did not want to deal with a liquidator yeah. and was concerned about the time that it would take for the for, for that liquidation process to um, to work its way through to finality. Yeah. So when will I get my money? Mm. As opposed to a buyback means mm. I get the money straight away. Unfortunately, yes, I get the money reasonably soon, but then I get a knock on the door from the tax man yeah. saying I'd like part of that. But it's not quite tax. as much money as I was hoping for. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so I think the lesson is explore the alternates with the client. But even prior to that point, explore with the client why they want to go down a yeah. certain path. If there are two paths yeah. to go down, because it may yeah. well be that you can you can. Uh, not so much um, 
change the client's mind, but at least at least find out what the motivating factors That's are. That's right. And it may well be that some of some of those motivating factors are misplaced. Yes, and I guess if in this case there had been some kind of advice to the client to the effect that there might be different tax outcomes taking one path rather than the other, um, even if it didn't go into what those tax outcomes would have been, that might have stood the solicitors in good stead. Absolutely. Or you could see a situation where you could say, all right, um, you don't like dealing with liquidators or you don't, you don't, you don't, um, you're not looking forward to the prospect of dealing with a liquidator and you're worried about the delay. Yeah. And I fully understand those reasons. Can I tell you, though, that if you, if you go down an alternate path, you won't have those problems but you might have, mm. in, in your mind, a bigger problem, namely, namely a tax liability. Yeah. Or even, for, for instance, suggest that because there is a potential for a tax issue, suggest that she seek advice from an accountant and then perhaps even attend the conference with the accountant and the, and the client yeah. and then discuss it jointly. Yeah. I mean, it was a big decision being made here. It probably justified a bit more mm. um, a bit more attention. I agree. Um, what do you think about lawyers who will just say to the client that they don't give any tax advice and that they should seek separate advice on that? It happens quite frequently, not so much in... in in so far as tax advice is concerned, but but other issues uh, as well, where I see my retainer as as being this, and in their retainer documentation they actually say we're not we're not advising on 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 certain issues, but the courts will say well you are the professional person, yeah, and you are best placed to be able to say to the client, although I don't have in this instance tax expertise, I am able to tell you that I believe there are tax consequences. Mm. It's not appropriate because I don't have the expertise to give you that tax advice, but I do recommend that you get it from an expert, either yeah. from another lawyer or from an accountant, so that you you make the decision in an informed way. I think too many lawyers feel that because they have a very brief set of words in a retainer agreement, for instance, that we don't give tax advice, that then removes any liability yeah, um, but it's not a get out of jail free card. I don't card. believe it is, and I don't <laughs> believe most most judges would not would yeah, not see it as a get out yeah. of jail card either. And I, I suppose that's also a warning for for lawyers who are involved in any sort of commercial transaction or work. You may not have deep knowledge of tax matters, but you should know when the red flags are going up, shouldn't you? And the court the court would expect that you would have that yeah. knowledge, so you yeah. can't disavow all knowledge of it. And the other issue, in, I think, in, in the case is to step back and look at the entire picture or what the client's expectations yeah. are. Yeah. Where does the client want to get to? Mm. She wants yeah. out of this company. She wants the value of her shareholding in that company. And true it is that she, like any person, they would want, they would want the value of that shareholding in their pockets as quickly as possible. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that you, you, you don't then explore... Yeah. Possible barriers to that to yeah. to that objective. And if there are upsides and, they, and downsides of taking different paths to get there, it's good to know what they're going to be. Absolutely. Yeah. So the risk message or the the practical tips that come from that case. Um, look at the whole picture. Work out what the try what the client is trying to achieve. Explore with the client where there are these situations, and lawyers face them quite often, where there's different paths a, a client can take. Explore the reasons why the client might want to choose a particular path, 
but don't ignore the other. Don't yeah. don't assume that because you have an instruction that you'd like the client would like to go down a particular path, that that's the end of your obligation or the end of your role, because the court will will say, you're the professional, you should have understood that there was an alternate, and that and you should have at least advised the client as to what that alternate was. Yes. Yeah, and I guess the fact that the client was aware of the alternate but not really aware of what the advantage was um, was the kicker here. Mm. Well, yeah. the court actually found that if she had been given, although she was not keen to go down a liquidation path, if she had been given appropriate advice, she would have at least explored that yeah. opportunity. Yeah. So I guess in that case, to some extent at least, that the the lesson is that um, that sometimes it's the role of the lawyer to tell the client something the client doesn't want to hear. And that was definitely also the case in Bailey and La Hood, which was a Supreme Court decision from 2017. Peter, do you want to just outline what happened in that case? There was some litigation involving um, a, a lady and her father concerning rural property, and the rural property was in far western New South Wales. The, the client engaged a particular law firm to conduct litigation um, and that litigation ultimately settled. She then engaged an, another law firm, which we'll call law firm number two, to bring proceedings against the first law firm because she didn't like the way in which that litigation was conducted or settled. She then brought in a third law, law firm and there's probably alarm bells even yeah. now for people listening to this. <laughs> there's then a third law firm who was brought in to resolve the proceedings that had been brought against the first law firm. And ultimately, the case that, that uh, was before the uh, New South Wales Supreme Court was the claimant suing law firm number three because she alleged that that law firm was negligent in not giving advice to bring proceedings against law firm number two. <laughs> are we seeing a pattern here? <laughs> are we seeing a pattern? Yes, we definitely are. Um, th by the time it came to the Supreme Court, um, I think she had been through two uh, law firms that were representing her in this in this case, the last of which... <laughs> I bet they were nervous. Yeah, the, the last of which ceased acting for her because uh, she wasn't able to put them in funds, so she conducted the hearing um, herself. There was, um, and I think this probably saved the law firm at the end of the day, there were two things that, that saved them. There was no finding of negligence after what looks like being a very lengthy hearing. The lawyers had said to the client after um, a conference with, with senior and junior counsel, they said in writing, as to the claim against your former solicitors, I do not believe there are there to be high prospects of success in prosecuting the claim of negligence. Now, that was not what she wanted to hear. Mm -hmm. She then, at a later point, said, I'm going to seek another opinion. She just keeps going from lawyer to lawyer, it seems. And when she came to collect her file, the solicitors uh, um, noted that she had said she was going to get a second opinion and they recommended to her the name of a particular solicitor expert that she could consult. Mm. And I think that um, in the Supreme Court... Justice Rain found that the solicitors had, had were not negligent and that the advice that they gave was, was appropriate I advice. I bet they were glad that they'd put that advice in writing to her as to the prospects of success against the former solicitors. I think that's right, although 
from a risk management point of view, the solicitors succeeded. However, they were embroiled in this litigation and there would have been a huge amount of legal costs incurred, um, quite apart from the anxiety involved in just defending professional negligence yeah. litigation. So at the end of the day, the advice that they gave was considered to be appropriate advice. My thinking though, if if you're looking at this case as a what what's the takeaway, what could the, the, these lawyers have done differently or what should lawyers do differently if they're involved in similar situations is I think to try to understand the underlying emotional family issues involved. Yeah. This was a lady who some years earlier was embroiled in litigation uh, involving her father. There were other family members involved. There's reference to separate proceedings where there was an application by her to wind up a, fi a family partnership. So if you actually just started the, the initial consultation in, in trying to get that history out, it should have been apparent that, that there, there was more at play here than just do I have a negligence claim against, right. against my former lawyers. The, the, the other alarm bells, of course, are the fact that she's suing one law firm after another. <laughs> uh, that would be, that would be um, yeah. alarming. Um, and although the advice, I think, was appropriate advice, if you're going to go to the trouble of getting a client like that who may not want to hear the advice, if you're going to go to the trouble of, of um, bringing that client to a conference with senior and junior counsel, which I think was, was the appropriate thing to do, and the advice is given in conference, by all means confirm the advice in writing as the solicitors have done. I think I would also get a joint advice from the two barristers. It doesn't have to be too lengthy, just confirming the advice yeah. that they gave in conference and give that to the client So you've got as a well. consistent yes. approach. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it was good to see that there was no finding of negligence in, in that particular case. Um, I, th I think you do need to take extra care when you've got clients who've got a history of um, suing their lawyers. What do you think about um, actually suggesting somebody from whom to get a second opinion if think, you're telling the client something they don't want to hear? I think that's prudent. Um, be careful before you actually give a, a name. Right. Because whilst there are a number of people who've been uh, in the industry for, for many, many years and can, and can safely put their hand up as being experts. Most have expertise in particular fields. Yes. Um, you wouldn't want to get an extreme example of recommending person A um, but then finding that you are the subject of a claim yourself because you should have recommended person B. Um, <laughs> that would be disastrous. That would perhaps, be disastrous. Perhaps suggesting a couple of names or maybe even suggesting that the client... Um, approach the Law Society for the yes. name of an accredited specialist, accredited specialist in whatever the area is. Absolutely. The other yeah. issue in, in this case, when you when you look at the, the judgment and the, and, the, and the background facts, is that the client wanted advice about whether or not a cause of action was available against the, the, the other solicitors, but that was almost peripheral to, the, to what the initial instructions were all about. And it's a very easy thing for a client in the course of a meeting to say, by the way, I want to get I want to get your advice about whether you think I've got a cause of action against earlier solicitors. 
that can be stated very briefly, but to actually answer that question properly requires a lot of work. You might have to, for instance, look at your retainer agreement and say, well, if you, if you do want me to explore this, bear in mind this is litigation that goes back decades and involves a number of law firms. For me to give you that advice that, that, you, that you briefly stated that you want, I'll need to firstly have a look at our retainer agreement to make sure that that, that captures exactly what you want. And secondly, I'm going to have to get quite a lot of documentation. Yes. The earlier files, how those, how, how the earlier litigation was settled. I've also, I, I would also say I want to involve counsel. Yes. Possibly Which senior they counsel. Did to, in this case, yeah. at, at the end of the day, and give the client some some understanding as to how much you need to read and absorb and understand before you can give that advice, and how much it's likely going to cost. Yes. The next couple of cases we're talking about are disciplinary matters and it seems to me that um, that the common thread is that the solicitor was placed under under pressure either by or on behalf of the client. Yes. First one is the 2017 NCAD Occupational Division case of Legal Services Commissioner and Huggett. Um, can you just outline what yes. happened in that one? Yes, that was, a, that was an unfortunate outcome for the solicitor, um, a finding of professional misconduct, a reprimand, an order that uh, he undertake an ethics course, a fine and an order for costs. It's, but, having, but having said that, when there's also a degree of there but for the grace of God go I in that you can see a scenario where not so much the clients in this case, but the son of the clients put a lot of pressure on the solicitor. Yeah. The son is um, a local real estate agent. His parents live in Sydney. The solicitor is in, is in um, rural New South Wales and that's where the son is located as well. The parents have property um, close to where the, the son is located. They're trying to subdivide it. The parents have lost over time the certificate of title. So the solicitor needs to go through the process of applying for a new certificate of title. Um, and that requires a stat deck, amongst other things, to be signed by the, by the parents who, who are the clients and who live in Sydney. There's a lot of pressure, it seems, applied on the solicitor to get this done and get it done quickly. And that pressure seems to have been applied more by the son than by the parents. Unfortunately, um, the solicitor sends a statutory declaration to clients with a post-it note on it. And as soon as I read what was on the post-it note, you'll realise where the solicitor has gone wrong. The post-it note said, please sign the stat deck in the marked places. I will witness your signature when you return them and complete all the balance details. Please send the same pen back. Oh, no. <laughs> yes. And that was a post-it note on the, on the document itself. Oh, dear. So the solicitor was then the subject of disciplinary proceedings yeah. by the Legal Services yeah. Commissioner. There's a number of um, issues that, that arise in, in, in a circumstance like that. Firstly, um, in the event that the clients, in this case the parents, suffered a loss, um, that loss may well be excluded under the fraud and dishonesty mm. um, law cover policy provision. They, it, at the end of the day, they didn't suffer a loss. 
what happened was that the stat decks came back to the law firm. It was opened by another solicitor in that firm because the solicitor who had written the post-it note had since left. That solicitor recognised that this document had not been properly executed and so had to bring the son in and explain that this document needed to be executed again. That was an easy conversation to have. Exactly, and and also referred the matter to the authorities. Um, The other thing, of course, is there's there's possibly been a a breach of the, um, the Oaths Act, so there could well have been a local court prosecution for that. The solicitor conceded in, in the proceedings before NCAT that he made a hurried and incompetent decision and that he was under considerable time pressure. Now, that pressure was the parents, who were the clients, expressing distress at the delay in getting this subdivision mm-hmm. sorted and the son, who was, who was shortly to go overseas, putting pressure on the solicitor yeah. to get it done because um, he was concerned about about d- delays as well. Now, I think to overcome all of that, and you and you often find, and the next case we'll talk about has 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 the same elements to it of of client pressure or pressure on behalf of the client. But I think in a circumstance like that, it's immediately obvious to to everyone who listens to this that the solicitor should not have done it under any circumstances. However, most solicitors that you talk to will say, I've been subjected to that, to similar type of pressure. Yes. So it's something that seems People to be across... People always want things done yesterday exactly the, exactly for whatever reason. The pressure. Yeah. Um, what, I would, what I would suggest in terms of how to avoid circumstances like this is firstly to remember that you are the professional. Yes. And you need to at all times put your professional hat on. So if there's a client that's exerting pressure on you, you need to to calmly explain what the process is and you also, I think in a circumstance like this, need to explain why there have been delays and that would, would, would carry with it a discussion about what happens when somebody loses a certificate of title. Mm. It's not something that can be easily Mm. uh, replaced and the authorities require a fair degree of evidence and persuasion because there have been a number of instances over the years of title fraud. Yes. So they're naturally wary about just handing out new certificates of title. So they have to be satisfied, and that's why statutory declarations come into play, that these people are in fact entitled to receive a new certificate of title. And I can't help but feel that if that is something that was the subject of a discussion, it might have alleviated some of the distress being felt by the parents and um, some of the agitation being mm. expressed by the son who or was the agent. Or it might not have, but it would have given the solicitor a good reason to say, look, we have to follow this and dot the I's and mm. cross the T's. Mm. Yeah, it'll be interesting as we move away from paper titles um, to electronic titles. This sort of scenario exactly is not likely to come up in the future, but you will still have situations where for somebody to deal with land, they're going to need their identity to be verified. So um, mm. so the similar things will still apply. I think that's right. And the other the other thing that that people don't necessarily understand who, who don't have a connection with property work is that um, most members of the public feel it should be just almost like a ticker box process yes. that can't take too long. Yes. And so when 
days and sometimes weeks go by and, and, and the client feels as though nothing's mm. happening, you'll get you'll get the, the the cranky emails or the cranky phone calls. But I think a lot of the heat can can be taken out of that situation if you just explain what the yes. process is. Yeah, because the lawyer seems to be being the roadblock in mm. a situation. Um, but very often there's a good reason for that. Mm. Um, well, why the, while in, in that case there was no apparent loss, um, the next case of the Law Society of New South Wales and Gather Coal um, is a very sad story. Uh, yes. Are, are you able to yes, certainly. Set, us, set it out for us? I will. Um, again, as, as people listen to this, they'll, they'll, they'll realise what's, what's gone on. The, the solicitor's primary client, if I can call him that, is a chap called Vince Burgio. Now, he was an executive banker with whom the solicitor had had a professional dealings over the years in that he was actually the, the banker whom the solicitor had gone to to obtain an earlier loan for an right. investment property. So, so an interesting the... power relationship going yes. on there. Yeah. That's right. Um, that transaction had gone through, that loan transaction had gone through to completion. The solicitor himself was primarily, uh, when one reads the reasons for decision, involved in personal injury, workers' compensation and motor accident claims. He didn't really have much in the way of experience in terms of either conveyancing or financing. The, 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 the primary client, I guess you could call him that, uh, Vince, makes, um, makes an appointment with the solicitor, expresses this degree of urgency and says, I need you to witness some loan documents. We're getting a loan of about $550,000. The purpose of the loan was stated to be to assist a close family friend who was in financial difficulties. So Vince um, comes to, to, the, to visit the solicitor. I think they meet um, during the course of Vince's um, lunch break. And Vince is still a fairly senior executive in a, in a banking organisation. So although the solicitor hadn't acted for um, Vince before, he had, did, he had a professional relationship mm. with him. Um, the loan is in the name of both Vince and his wife. The wife is not there. Um, the documents that, that were provided to the solicitor uh, are about half, half an inch thick wad of documents and they'd all been signed by the, by the wife. The solicitor asks Vince, where's the wife? Um, he requests that, um, that she be telephoned and that she be brought into this meeting as well. Um, the client, Vince, actually um, is seen to ring a number, which the solicitor is told is the wife's number, basically says to the solicitor, I'm sorry, I can't get through to her, and in any event, she's looking after the children today. So she's not available. He then says to the solicitor, my wife has given me authority to deal with you on her behalf as well. Um, he produces um, a number of documents, um, a passport um, and two rate notices, I think. The solicitor expresses reluctance about proceeding um, with the, with the um, transaction and certainly purporting to witness her signature without her being present but again, seems to have been cajoled into doing so by mm. 
this person who was a, a senior executive in a in a banking organisation, um, who the solicitor had dealt with in that in that professional capacity before. Another red light um, issue, though, occurs a few days later, where Vince rings the solicitor and says the lender has got a problem with the documents. One of the documents wasn't executed properly, so I need to see you again, so that we can we can re-execute the documents. So there's another conference and again the wife is not there and right. again it's the same excuse that the wife's looking after the children and she can't and she can't be there, she's unavailable. And this time the solicitor brings, sorry, this time Vince brings um, not only the passport but also a credit card in right. the name of the wife. So the solicitor looks at the signature on the passport, the credit card and then looks at the signature on the documents that have already been signed, accepts the Vince's assurance that they've been signed by, by the wife and then purports to sign the documents um, as a witness when, of course, yeah. the wife wasn't present. And he's present. giving a solicitor's certificate And he's giving as a well. certificate. Yeah. So it's quite, um, yeah. it's quite dramatic from the, from the wife's point of view because yeah. at the end of the day you can probably see where this is headed. The wife knows nothing about this loan. All yeah. of these documents are just basically stolen from the wife and brought to the, and brought to the solicitor's office um, and she, um, this, this prosecution is brought. But as you said at the outset, uh, unlike in the earlier case, in this case uh, there is quite a quite a large uh, potential for loss on her yeah. part and the fraud and dishonesty exclusion comes into yeah. play. In fact, we should just explain that um, um, while the law cover policy covers lawyers for third-party claims, if there's been fraud or dishonesty on the part of the lawyer, then that's, that's an exclusion under the policy. Mm. And so the lawyer is really left high and dry if a claim is made to recover the funds that the wife lost as a result of him giving the false certificate and falsely witnessing um, the signature of whoever was the imposter. <laughs> yes. And, it, and unfortunately it has happened... Um uh, quite a few times, and Law Cover have had quite a few claims where this has been has been yeah. um, brought into play. Um, and these people, um, the solicitors that are, that, are, that are that are caught in this, um, they're not by nature dishonest people. No, they've just been they've been. I'm not sure what the right word is. Cajoled, or encouraged, or convinced, or persuaded to go yeah. down a particular path. Yeah. And, and of course, they regret it when they're the subject of disciplinary yeah. action and, and court proceedings and no indemnity and yeah. and the like. Uh, and, I, and I guess most of them, looking back, would realise that there were a number of red flags that they should have that they mm. should have picked up on, and that they probably would have picked. Well, in this case particularly, the solicitor might well have stood more firmly if he didn't have this pre-existing business relationship. Yes, a couple of things. Um, I'm not a um, conveyancing lawyer. I'm not a banking and finance lawyer. Um, yes, we have had this professional relationship before, but this is not my area. But I can give you the name of another solicitor who practices in this area. Yeah. So that's that you can distance yourself in that yeah. way. Um, you can also pick up the fact that um, the the the, the, um, the theme that runs through these claims is uh, expression of urgency on the part of the the fraudster. Right. So I guess that's an alarm bell in itself. And. And sometimes it's the lawyer's job to slam the brakes on. Yes, that's right. <laughs> and, or even to make, to make inquiries. Um, in this case, why is it so urgent? You tell me that this loan is to assist a family friend. Yeah. So you're not getting the benefit of these loan monies. Yeah. Nor is your wife. Mm. This family friend is. Mm. 
but you're here telling me this is urgent, urgent, urgent. It has yeah. to be done straight away. Yeah, and Again, in fact, you- it, it, it begs the question, you know, what should you be advising a client who's proposing to take out a loan that's for someone else? Of yeah. half a million dollars. <laughs> yeah. um, the, the I'll try to ring the wife. Mm. He could be punching any number into his phone yeah. and pretending and probably to, was. Probably was and, and yeah. purporting to make a phone call to the wife. Um, give me her number. I will ring her. Yes. That and you can see if, if her name's coming up on the screen. Um, insist, and again, um, if, if you had done a lot of banking and finance work or, or property work, you could have said at the initial phone call, Vince, I'm happy to assist you with this process. Yeah. Send me the documents first for me to read. Mm-hmm. So that if that request is complied with, you can then calmly in your office sit down and go through the fo- yep. those papers and there's half an inch apparently yeah. here worth of papers without the client, in this case Vince, sitting breathing opposite down you, your neck. breathing <laughs> down your neck and saying, quick, 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 she's got yeah. my authority, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And, you would inst- and it would give you an opportunity to say, well, you'll both need to be in my office. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So yeah. that, so that, so doing the, doing the two tasks at the same time is probably yeah. um, a, a risk factor in that, you're, you're having the initial consultation with the with one of the clients mm. and you're also undertaking the tasks that they want, namely reading through and, and witnessing documents. Mm. Whereas if you required the documents to be sent to you at first instance, they would be sent to you presumably not signed by anybody. Yes, that would be better. <laughs> if, they, if they were signed. <laughs> and you, you would almost, I, I would think, probably catch the, catch the fraudster out at that yeah. point. If they said, no, no, yeah. that can't happen, again, that would be an alarm yeah. bell. Why can't it happen? Yeah. You, want me to, you want me to assist you witnessing documents? That's fine. I'll need the, the persons who are going to be signing the documents to be there in front of me and then I will witness them signing. Yeah. But if it's, no, no, come and we'll do the whole thing yeah. somewhere and, by the way, it'll have to be in my lunch break and I've only got half an hour so it has to yeah. be all rushed. You can just see where the, the element of... Um, of urgency has become Yeah, and the paramount. solicitor's got carried away with it. It's the kind of thing that you could lose your practising certificate over. Was that the case here? Uh, no, there was a reprimand, um, a fine of $5,000 um, and an order that um, the Law Society's costs be paid in the NCAP proceedings. Mm-hmm. Um, the tribunal did say that the finding of professional misconduct was of a very high degree and said that the sister lent himself and his professional standing to a very serious mm. fraud apparently per- perpetrated by Mr Burgio upon his wife. Now, when you read that particular um, judgment, those reasons for decision, um, they do refer to other uh, NCAT um, reasons and to Court of Appeal authority that deal with situations of professional misconduct in these uh, false attesting type cases. Yes. Um, But I think when I read them, I think the mood, if I can use that word, is shifting more towards you will lose your practising certificate. Yeah. I think up to this point... So he might have been lucky in this case. I think so. Up to this point there's been a considerable degree of reprimand, there have been fines, there have been findings of professional misconduct. The language used is quite harsh but... More often than not, the solicitor has kept their practising certificate. Yeah. I'm not so sure moving forward that will be the case yeah. because I think there's enough awareness mm. of the wrongdoing of that conduct 
and I think that there will and be... And the potential loss to people. That's yes. not going to be covered by your policy. Not going to be covered by yeah. your policy. I mean, uh, there was never a clearer risk message <laughs> than from this case, just don't do so. it. <laughs> and and apart, from, apart from saying to the client, I'm simply not going to do it, I think you would, you would lead into that statement by saying, I'm a professional. Yeah. I cannot engage in this conduct. Talk about the fact that frauds are perpetrated in this mm-hmm. manner and that... We, we, it, it is imperative that we have the person in front of us. Now, again, the court will, will expect you to understand the very serious consequences that flow from this yes. and that you need to explain that to the client. The client might think, although they shouldn't think this, but a lot of people might think, look, does it really matter whether um, the person is present or not? It's their signature. Can you just say that you witnessed it? How hard can it be? So they don't necessarily appreciate the seriousness of the wrongdoing, but the court will say, in effect, yes, but you should have. Yes. And you need to say to the client, I'm a professional. And I think at the end of the day, if you explained it in those terms in a calm way and even talk about the professional relationship you've had and say how much you value that and that you're not challenging the truthfulness of what the person is telling you, but this is the process that, that we have to go through. I think the client will both appreciate the fact that you that you are conducting yourself in a professional way and they'll also respect you for it. Yeah. Now, the fraudster in this case is going to be annoyed. Yes, of course. He's not ca- going to get his way. You don't care whether the fraudster yeah. appreciates it or respects you or not. Yeah. But I think um, you would go away from a meeting like that saying, well, I, I feel as though, yeah. I feel as though the, the client was annoyed with me that I wouldn't do it, but I've explained to the client why. Yeah. Rather than just a blanket, I can't do that, goodbye, I think yeah. if you actually explained the, the process that you need to go through and why it's important and the serious consequences yeah, of, of this You should be able to done. preserve a relationship that you would want to preserve. Yes, yeah. I agree. Yeah. So if, if we draw together all the threads from those cases, I think, I think probably the message is that um, as a professional it's not good enough to just be a yes man to whatever the client wants. Sometimes you need to take a step back, look at the big picture and t- sometimes you need to tell the client exactly what they don't want to hear. Absolutely. In, in reasonably, in reasonably um, forceful terms sometimes but to avoid a scenario where the client can come back at you, make sure that you record that, especially if you know that it's advice that the client doesn't want to hear. Well, thank you, Peter. It's been a pleasure talking to you today. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to Risk On Air by Law Cover. Join us for the next episode and subscribe to stay up to date.